Well, you know, over in Orlando, uh, there's this place called Titanic, the Artifacts Exhibition. Amanda's been dropping hints at me for the last year to go, which I never would. I don't know if it's just because Celine Dion ruined that whole thing for me with that hearing that song a million times. I don't know. But anyways, I finally caved in yesterday. Took Amanda over there. And there's two ways that you can tour this place where they, you know, they display artifacts from the actual ship. You can either do a self-guided tour and walk through your own pace, or you can do the dinner gala experience, which is what we did last night. Basically what that is, it's, it's a play that they act out. They reenact that night that the Titanic sunk, and you get to participate in the play. So when you arrive, some people even dressed up for the occasion. I didn't so much. But <laughs> when you show up, they give you a boarding pass, and on that boarding pass is the name of a person that was on the ship. And you're to pretend that you are that person for the night. And so you have this little cocktail party. It's just like you're going on a cruise. You board the ship, take pictures with the captain at the grand staircase replica they have, and then you do this surprise retirement dinner for the captain. And the whole time this is going on, there's six actors that are doing this, this play. They'll come up to you and they'll ask who you are. And, of course, you're not supposed to say, well, I'm Jason from Lake. No, you're supposed to say, I'm so-and-so from... Rochester, New York, or whatever, whoever it is you are. And so you play this role, and then eventually after the dinner, you go on a tour of the ship, and then that's when things start to go downhill. Eventually, as they're acting this thing out, we find out that the ship has hit a, an iceberg, water's coming in, people start freaking out, and then eventually they split the men from the women and children, and then they lead you into this room where it's like you're on the deck of the ship. You can see the stars and the water, and uh, we go through an evacuation deal. And, of course, the play gets pretty dramatic at that point because everyone knows what's coming. And then they lead you into another room, finally, where there's a memorial. They have these plaques on the wall where you can find your person, your name, and see whether you survived or not. My person, David Barton, uh, had just got a job with Kodak, and he was on his way to Rochester, New York, and he didn't make it. Uh, Amanda's person, uh, Mrs. Annie Sage, was traveling with her family, her husband and nine children, and none of them made it. And they were actually on their way to Jacksonville, Florida. Well, that whole experience was interesting, especially there at the end when you realize what's about to happen. You start off with dinner, with singing and dancing, and excitement only for it to end with devastation and death. The play does a great job of making you think about life and death and how death is coming for us all. And in that case, death was just a few hours away. During that final scene, you could actually hear and see people crying, tearing up. I mean, I guess it's just part of being interactive just really made you feel what was going on. But for me, that wasn't the saddest part. The saddest part was once you got through that final scene and you went through the memorial 
and then the, the last room you get to touch a piece of ice and then you get to see this actual piece of the ship it's like 10 feet high from the hole you didn't walk into a gift shop and that's it it's over it's done it's like all right we'll buy some trinkets said So while the play does a great job of bringing you up to the point of death and making you think about it, there's no answer. There's no solution to any of it. Well, after that play, Amanda and I eventually made our way to downtown Orlando, which was a big mistake. We walked around a bit. I hadn't been down there in a while. And you can plainly see what the world does with life and death. Let's eat. Let's drink and be merry. Let's party. Let's get wild. Let's do whatever we want, whatever we please, because this is it. This is our only life. Let's make the best of it. So you had people stumbling around the streets, drunk, half naked, and all the rest. We didn't stay there very long. Which is really to say that they don't have an answer to death either. So we're just going to drink and party and just pretend it doesn't exist. Now, why am I sharing this with you today? Well, it's because of something Jesus is going to say in our text today that's pretty shocking. If you recall, last Lord's Day, we looked at John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, where Jesus is having a conversation with some Jews in the temple about how, because of their unbelief, these people were not who they thought they were, claimed to be. They believed themselves to be children of God. But Jesus exposes them for being, in reality, children of the devil. And they gave various reasons for why they should be considered children of God. They could appeal to their lineage. They could appeal to their religious beliefs and practices. They could appeal to some sort of moral superiority. But as we saw, none of those reasons would work with Christ. To their lineage, Christ said, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And to their religious practices, Christ says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word, for you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then to their moral superiority, Christ says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so as we discussed, if none of those things could be pointed to as indications that you are a true disciple of Christ, what then does? And Jesus answered that in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is what marks a true disciple, a believer, true believer. It's not just what comes out of your mouth, what you profess. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important what comes out of your mouth. We're not excluding that. But you can lie. Lies can come out of your mouth. And so it's not just what comes out of your mouth. 
It's also the fruit that comes from your life, from your doing, from your actions. If you're a true disciple, you're a person who abides in the word, a person who never ceases to be persuaded by the word, doesn't elevate anything else above that word. You're a person who never ceases to rest in its grace and power, turning somewhere else for peace. You're a person who never ceases to eat and drink from that word, as if life could be sustained anywhere else. You're a person who never ceases to walk in the light of that word. These Jews, they may have expressed some degree of belief and interest in Christ, but in reality they were frauds. Perhaps they liked the benefits of following Jesus around. Hey, we get food, we get fish and chips, we get healing. But they didn't actually love Christ and had no desire to do what Christ demands his followers to do. And so he would go on to say to them, again, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? For whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Well, that now leads us then to verses 48 through 59. Immediately after hearing that they do not hear the word of God because they do not belong to God, because they are not of God, the Jews answered him this in verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. For Father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And there are two things that Jesus says here that are quite shocking. But before we touch on those, I want you to notice their immediate response to Jesus. They say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Friends, as I pointed out last week, while on this earth at this present time, before the final judgment reveals all things, we can speak of three categories of people. There are those who are not the children of God and never pretend to be. Saw a bunch of those last night. There are those who are the children of God, and then there are those who say they are the children of God, but in reality are not. And it's in this conversation that Jesus is mainly dealing with that third group, those who claim to be children of God, but in reality are not. 
But what I find so interesting here is how these people respond to Jesus when he calls them out for their hypocrisy. Notice they didn't say, well, you know, Jesus, that's just your opinion. And, uh, you know, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Sorry. And can we get a handshake? They don't respond that way. Instead, they say, are we right in saying that you are, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, that you have a demon? So first, they try to insult Jesus by calling him a Samaritan. Samaritans were considered half-breeds, a mixed people despised by strict Jews. Again, O. Palmer Robertson says of Samaritans, and I've read this before, Samaritans had been aliens to the covenant people of God for 500 years. At the time of Judah's mass exile, the Babylonians implanted various peoples from other nationalities and ethnic groups to keep the land from turning into a wasteland. Though worshiping Israel's God, they set up their own syncretistic centers in their various towns. And when the Samaritans offered to assist the returning Israelites to rebuild their temple, they were bluntly repulsed by Israel's leadership. Occupying the territory north of Judah, they perpetually maintained a worship center rivaling Jerusalem. And as John comments, Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. The greatest slur that Jesus' enemies could place on him was to label him a Samaritan. But then the insults don't stop there. They would also say that Jesus has a demon. Demon. And well, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's just outright blasphemous. But why are they saying all this? Because Jesus exposed them for who they truly were. And so, friends, this is why I say this to you again. While it is true that while on this earth at this present time, before the final judgment, we can speak of three categories of people, ultimately, in the end, it will be revealed that there are only two. And that's it. Those who love the Father and love his Christ and those who hate God. And though that third group in the here and now, that group that claims to belong to God and, and gives all the various reasons for why they should be considered children of God, though they may act and talk civil and reasonable at times, the fact is, is when, when you press them just right with the truth of God's word, you'll begin to see and hear what they're really about. And that's what we see here in this story. The respectable, honorable pew sitter who believes he is justified before a holy God because of his lineage or his family or his roots or his continual religious practices, if you press him just right with the truth, you'll find out really quick what he's really about. He hates God. He despises the Messiah. He despises his word. And so notice the flip. Jesus says to them, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. And after being exposed for who they truly are, what did they turn around and say of him? No, you have a demon. Beloved, there's no middle ground here. At the end of the day, these three categories of people will be revealed to be ultimately only two. Jesus would say in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You either love God or you hate him. There's no middle ground. You either serve God or you serve another. And here's how you recognize those who love God. You abide in his word. In John 15, Jesus will go on to say, You are my friends if you do what I command you. This sounds very similar to what he says earlier in chapter 14, where he states, If you love me, you will, what? Constantly say that you love me? Again, not a bad thing to say. That's not what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Friends, loving God and obeying God, that is abiding in his word, are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. Now, again, I want you to understand clearly what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that if you attempt to obey God in order to be justified, or I'm not saying that you attempt to obey God in order to be justified. That's not the point. The point is this, and Jesus will clarify this in chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. you. Notice that our obedience, our abiding in his word is the fruit that flows out of the grace and love of God, being chosen by him and appointed to good works. You don't try to do good in order to be justified. But obedience comes as a fruit, having been justified by the grace, mercy, and love of God. And if that fruit of obedience is not there, then it doesn't matter what's coming out of your mouth. That's what Jesus is exposing with these people. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. It's the exact opposite. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. Again, there's no middle ground. He didn't say, you're not doing the works Abraham did, and you're just laying around in some middle ground. No, he says, you're not doing the works Abraham did. Instead, you're doing the works your father, the devil, did. It's one or the other, folks. There's no middle ground. In verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and father of lies. And so the Jews answering him in all this said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And then Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, now we come to the first shocking thing that Jesus says at the end of this conversation, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The first thing I want you to notice are the words, keeps my word. Here again, notice the emphasis Christ places on obedience. The emphasis he places on abiding in the word. That word keep there doesn't mean that you have a copy of the Bible and you just happen to maintain possession of it because, I don't know, because it's an heirloom and it's a a nice ghost skin Bible and you want to keep it. No, that word keep there means to observe, to conform one's actions or practice to. Again, it it makes you a a person who keeps his word is a person who seeks to observe all that Christ has commanded in his word to conform your life to it. And to those, Christ says, he will never see death. Now, what in the world does that mean? That seems ridiculous. I mean, if we were to, I bet if we were to go to anybody on the streets of Orlando last night and said, you know, he who believes Christ will never see death, they would be like, well, you're nuts. I mean, what in the world are you talking about? Every person I've ever known who says they believe Jesus, has died. Well, the Jews said, basically responded the same way. Well, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. So this seems like a blatant contradiction, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to comport with reality. So how do we explain this? Is Jesus saying here that all who obey him and abide in him will never physically die? And if that's the case, then apparently there's never been a true disciple of Christ because we have all died. Well, if you recall, we touched on this already back in John chapter 5. And this is going to be a little repetitive here. But, you know, as I was working through this and writing it, I thought, well, what's the point of rewriting this if I've already been through it? So... (laughs) Just bear with me here. But uh, Jesus deals with this, or dealt with it back in chapter 5. Recall when he said it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. As I had noted, there were two, there's two extremes people fall into when they talk about death and resurrection. One extreme is to argue that resurrection deals only solely with the soul and not the body. They exclude the body. Hyperpreters do this. Pelagius did this. But then there's the other extreme, which is often an overreaction to that, and that is to define resurrection solely in terms of the physical. Our Forefathers in the faith, especially the Reformed, by and large, have argued that when death came into the world due to sin, death, 
comprehensively is to be understood in terms of the spiritual, the temporal, that is, if you want to say physical, and the eternal. So it's not one or the other. It's, it's the whole package deal. Death can be understood in terms of spiritual, temporal, and eternal. We see this affecting the spiritual in verse 25 of John 5, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, who are these dead here? What is this resurrection that's going on here? Well, it's what we some may call a spiritual resurrection, or to borrow the words from uh, John in the book of Revelation, the first resurrection. Notice Jesus said that the hour is coming and is now here. Not something that we're looking forward to in the future. It's now here. So that's your first clue. Then secondly, notice he calls them dead. He just simply refers to them as dead. He doesn't say those in the tomb like he will do in the second group. He just simply calls them the dead. And then notice he doesn't use the word all like he will in verse 28. And then thirdly, these dead who hear the voice of the Son of God live. That's it. There's no mention of judgment. There's no mention of condemnation. Notice what Jesus will go on to say in verse 24, which confirms all this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So notice whoever believes him has, uh, whoever believes him who has sent me has, not will have, but has eternal life now. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Not will pass from death to life, but has passed from death to life. Again, I believe this is clearly referring to that first stage of resurrection life for the believer. And this is not a stage that the unbeliever gets to participate in. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You notice that. You were dead. You once walked in these things. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here you clearly see here in Ephesians from Paul, that this eternal life begins in us now, in the here and now, with this stage of resurrection life. But yet, that's not the complete picture. Do not stop there. 
for the complete picture, we go on to then verses 28, 29 of John 5, where Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, notice he says the hour is coming, and he leaves out the words and is now here. Whatever this resurrection is that he's speaking of here in verses 28 through 29 is entirely future. But then notice how he describes those who are called. He says all who are in the tombs. All, not some. And they're not just dead, they're in the tombs. A clear reference to our bodies. And then thirdly, notice who make up this resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Why would the good need to be raised to life if they already have life now? So you see the stages of resurrection life, spiritual, followed by physical. And so as that first section militates against those who would restrict resurrection solely to the physical, now Christ militates against those who deny the physical. It's both. Beloved, that's the point. And please be careful of those who don't see it as both. Like I said, there's either those who say, well, you know, eternal life has nothing to do with our bodies. Again, that's the hyperpreterists, that's the Pelagians. But then to the other extreme, there are those who say, well, it's got, it's got everything to do with our bodies, but it has nothing to do with the spiritual. And that's what the Jews here didn't get. What do you mean you'll never taste death? What are you, nuts? For the reprobate, for those who have denied Christ, for those who have denied the gospel, this physical resurrection at the end is the only form that they will ever see. But make no mistake about it, they will be raised and they will stand before Christ and they will be judged. Recall what we read then in Revelation 20, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And then you read this in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Beloved, for the rebel against Christ, this is the only resurrection that they will participate in. And it will result in eternal condemnation, eternal death. Death in its full sense of the word will have its way with those who rebel against this Messiah. But for the elect, this stage of the resurrection will complete what Christ started in the here and now. For Jesus would say to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, this is a fuller picture of death in the doctrine of resurrection. We have sin being dealt with in the here and now. We have death being finally and completely dealt with for the elect in the future. And we have those who are rebellious to Christ. They will be physically resurrected to stand before Christ in judgment and be sentenced to eternal condemnation in the second death. And we're going to see Jesus tie all this in together again when we get to chapter 11. Now, because that's a future sermon, I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it to you. But as I read it to you, notice how Jesus uses his language here concerning the death of Lazarus. And notice what he ultimately points to in all this. Listen, he says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. For it is the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. See, these are guys that don't get the full picture. It's just physical. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, but for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, here's John chapter 8. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, to all of this, in John chapter 8, the Jews replied, Well, now we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died as the prophets, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, you will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And then Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my glory. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When closing, we now come to the second shocking claim by Jesus here in this text. After mocking Jesus because of his promise that those who keep his word will never see death, Jesus then answers those mockers in two stages. The first stage is in verses 54 through 56. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham did what? He saw the day of Jesus. He saw the time when he was alive and reigning. You know, commentators, as John Piper notes, go all over the map trying to decide what point in Abraham's life this was referring to. We don't know. And Jesus didn't pause to explain to us exactly what he was referring to. But those who were mocking Jesus didn't care either. They saw the implication and pressed in on it, which then leads us to the stage two in answer to their question. Who do you make yourself out to be? And that's where Jesus, where they said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have, have you seen Abraham? And that's when he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here you have one of the most clearest, most forthright claims in this gospel that Jesus is Yahweh that he is the God of Israel, that he is the great I am. Notice if Jesus merely wanted to say, hey, I pre-existed, you know, I used to exist back in Abraham's day, he would have said before Abraham was, I was. But he means to say more than that. He says before Abraham was, I am. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Piper notes the implications of this are staggering for your life and for this world and for eternity. We will never exhaust the implications and relevance of this truth for all eternity. But the one focus of its relevance in this passage for us in this message is this. Because Jesus is God... His work on the cross and his word of promise will be totally successful. So that when he says you will never see death, you will never see death. 
God has spoken, and his word never fails. Yahweh promises in Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And this is what it means to be God. He speaks, and it is. And here, Jesus is God. Unquote. Well, you know, in the beginning of this, I shared how that Titanic Museum, nor the folks in downtown Orlando, could offer anybody any hope. They don't have an answer. In that play that we were in, death was thrown right in our face. And they did a great job doing it. It was pretty emotional for a lot of people. But then after that, there was no answer. There was no solution except buy some trinkets. Give us your money. And then we saw where that ultimately leads to by walking downtown Orlando at night. We'll party and we'll drink ourselves into oblivion. But here, beloved, we have our answer. The answer of Jesus is that he was and is the great I am from all eternity. And that he took on our human nature. He took on a reasonable soul and body. He became like one of us apart from sin so that he could die for our sin and destroy in death the one who has the power of death and then rise again triumphant over sin and death. And it's in this way he frees you and I from our lifelong bondage to sin and to the fear of death. And so I ask you today, will you hear Jesus' word? Will you flee to him? What's the alternative? Paul says it there in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Isn't that interesting? He ties in bad or good, uh, bad morals, ruining good morals with a, a denial of the resurrection of the dead. Think it matters what you do, what you say, what you believe. And then verse 34, wake up then from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. So will you, beloved, flee to Christ today? Will you hear his word to you today? That those who abide in him and keep his word will never taste death. Let's pray.